Crisis Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, China's big ban and how Amazon will wind up in New York City after all. But first, Uber comes clean on assaults. So for a few years now, I've been trying to convince my mother to take Uber or some other ride hail service like Lyft, particularly after she complains about the trials and tribulations of driving and parking in the city. But each time she insists that Uber and its peers aren't safe, recalling some news story or another about how someone was assaulted, raped or even murdered. And here's the thing. She's not exactly wrong. Uber last week came out with its first ever report on assaults in its U.S. ride hail business and found that over three thousand people were sexually assaulted last year. Another nine people were murdered and 58 were killed in accidents. Now, first, uh, some context. The overall number there works out to 0.0002%, which is the same percentage as your likelihood of being struck by lightning. And nearly 10% of the assaults and around half the murders were of drivers, not of riders. And many of the accidental deaths were of pedestrians or caused by drivers of non-Uber vehicles. But still, over 3,000 times an Uber ride ended in severe trauma. And it comes at a time when Uber and other ride hail companies are under pressure from regulators over their labor practices and from Wall Street over their lack of profits. It's one of those times when disclosure itself is positive, but what we learned isn't. And it now creates more incentive for Uber and its peers to do stricter background checks on drivers and implement more safety features for riders because there's now a benchmark of sorts. If Uber's numbers don't improve when next year's stats are released, expect more people to follow my mother's lead. In 15 seconds, we'll be joined by New York Times tech reporter, Mike Isaac. But first, this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by the New York Times' Mike Isaac. So, Mike, let's start here. Why did Uber release this safety report in the first place, right? Like Lyft hasn't done it. Why did Uber feel it needed to or, or why did it do it? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, there's probably the outer reason and the inner reason, right? The outer reason is the thing that Uber keeps saying is like, look, we're trying to make this this sort of information public. There's not really a lot of information on, on many modes of transportation, at least on sexual assaults or at least physical assaults that are not filed with the police. So this is kind of a move to urge other organizations to do so. I think, you know, another sort of tacit reason, though, is that you know, you can just like read the the newspaper or or whatever form of yeah. information and uh, see incidents of people being sexually assaulted in Ubers or Lyfts or or ride sharing. And there's sort of a nebulous feeling that there's lack of safety on these platforms. So I think the the idea is to get in front of it and say, look, we're trying to do something, and by publishing this information, we can urge others in the industry to help tackle it. Mike, obviously Uber particularly, and you've obviously written a book about the company, Uber particularly does have a lot more safety features now, both for riders and more checking on drivers than it did, say, two years ago or three years ago or certainly five years ago. From your perspective, Mm. is it enough right now? Is Uber where it should be in terms of checking on drivers, or are there things it could do still that it should do? Right where do I think they have come made significant progress in the past two years, specifically under where um, Dara has taken over, just because safety um, in terms of really basic features to to track uh, how people are in cars and how they can help them was never really prioritized under Travis for a very long time, and I think that's just you know you could 
chalk that up to a number of things, growth or just uh, things that were happening inside of the company. So I will say that they've added a number of different features. That said, I think this report actually kind of underscored where a lot of the safety issues were, and that was for riders as well as for drivers. You know, there were a significant number of people who attacked drivers, and you have to imagine, you know, if you take 20 or 30 different riders, uh, basically anyone who decides to take a ride share during the day, you never know who's getting into your car. So they're, they're experimenting things with things like recording, video, audio recording, but that brings up a whole other uh, slew of privacy issues. I still think they're going to be, like, trying to figure out what else they can do without creating a whole other backlash around uh, invading people's privacy inside of the car. I mean, one of the pushes has been for fingerprinting, right, of, of drivers, of prospective drivers. Mm. Is, is, is that just never going to fly? Because I know Uber likes to onboard drivers very, very quickly. Is, is that the main reason they're not doing it and can't technology solve that pretty fast i know this is the this has been a problem honestly since you know for years basically throughout the whole history of uber their whole thing was look we have to pr- provide liquidity in the driver base meaning get people on the platform as fast as possible and there was a whole cottage industry uh, around background checks that came up that way uh, the problem is they don't do the same fingerprint based background checks that uh, the tlc or taxi and limousine drivers are required to undergo there's debate on whether that is standard that is any more safer, at least from people in the industry. But I think a lot of folks would say the more you add on there, the better. But there's been no real sign that they're that they're actually going to cave on that, just because it does take quite a bit more bureaucracy and longer period of time. The one thing I will say is they are doing rolling background checks now. So rather than just you know passing your initial background check in the beginning, uh, you have to sort of have them continuously go. So if you commit a felony in, in, in the meantime, after you've already been approved, uh, you can get booted off the platform. So I will say that's an, at least some improvement. And Uber does say it's, it's taken tens of thousands of drivers off. I, I wonder, you know, you mentioned the, the TLCs or the taxi limousine commissions. Am I correct in saying, particularly in big cities like New York, your city of San Francisco, we don't really have good numbers on how many assaults have occurred within city licensed cabs, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that is the that's the, if you want to give Uber credit in something like this, you know, Lyft doesn't have this out there. And, you know, the taxi industry has never put a report like this out there unless you search for criminal filings or police reports. And, and as this Uber report showed, a lot of reports don't go reported to the, to the police. So, you know, it's hard to really gauge what Uber stats are compared to many other different parts of the industry. And hopefully, We'll see a little bit more transparency on this. Mike, final question for you. There's a, a general assumption in criminology that the number of, in, in general society, that the number of sexual assaults and rapes are, are incredibly underreported. Is it fair to yeah. assume then that when we hear this number from Uber, that they are similarly being underreported? Not by Uber, not, not knocking Uber, but just that drivers and riders are underreporting themselves. No, totally. I think that this is part of the difficulty in any sort of study, any sort of like methodology at scale is is, look, it's very difficult for victims to come forward on these incidents. And, you know, the Uber has said they don't want to report them to police because uh, they want to allow the victims to sort of do that themselves. But even getting people to really flesh that out and say this is something that happened is difficult. So it, it would not surprise me at all if the numbers were actually much higher. But um, this is probably the first step in trying to get to at least a more realistic number over a period of time. I think this is really just the beginning if, if others follow suit. Mike Isaac, tech reporter for The New York Times and author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. us. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. My final two right after this. 
Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is China, where all government and public institution offices will be required to remove foreign computer hardware and software within three years. For example, no more iPads or Dell laptops or Office 360 software or Intel chips. Now, this is in retaliation for a U.S. move to block domestic carriers and infrastructure providers from using Huawei parts, something that's been kind of one part national security and one part trade negotiation leverage. It's also a major escalation intentions between the two countries and has a better chance of sticking than the last time China tried to wean itself off Western tech, namely because its own homegrown solutions have just gotten so much more effective. What remains to be seen, though, is if China also views this a bit like the U.S. views Huawei and if it will give in if it can get concessions on trade. And finally today, it has been nearly a year since Amazon bailed on its plan to bring part of its massive HQ2 project to Long Island City after receiving vocal push back from some local officials and residents who objected to billions of dollars in related tax incentives from New York City and New York State. Now, some of those critics, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are claiming vindication after Amazon announced it will lease out space in Manhattan's Hudson Yards office park and employ around 1,500 people all without tax incentives. So three things to know. First, Amazon's Hudson Yards plans are not a replacement for Long Island City, where 25,000 people had been slated to work. Two, a quick reminder that Amazon could have easily proceeded with Long Island City. Its decision was more about hurt feelings than it was about elected official roadblocks. And three, as CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin noted today, there is some real irony in progressive politicians claiming victory here. When Amazon is leasing space and employing people in wealthy Manhattan instead of in working-class Long Island City. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great National Pastry Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.